0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew. With this week's message, here's shepherding pastor Joe Cook. Well, almost a
1: hundred years ago, TV and film were really starting to become part of people's everyday lives. And there was a new occupation kind of dawning upon the world and it was that of the professional comedian. I'm going to tell you about a guy who was very popular in the 30s and the 40s. A few of you in here will know who he is. Some of you have never heard of him, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. His name was W.C. Fields. Now, you heard a few laughs. Some people know who he is. W.C. Fields was known for, well, he was kind of a cynic, okay? I don't know if you would go all the way to saying he was a dark comic, but he was a little cynical about life. He was known for a few things. He hated children. He hated dogs, and he loved alcohol. That was kind of his persona. That was kind of his reputation. As he began to uh, age and got older in years, his lifestyle caught up to him. And the story goes that he was on his deathbed. And a friend who knew his reputation and knew his character and knew that of all things he was most cynical about, he was cynical about religion. In fact, W.C. Fields was an atheist. So you can imagine the shock of his friend when he came in and he saw W.C. Fields opening a Bible and reading it in his bed. His friend said, what are you doing? And Fields, in his natural sarcasm, said, well, I'm looking for loopholes. Okay, Looking for loopholes. You know, that's a tendency that all human beings have, and we don't have to teach it to anybody. I taught school for 20 years. We never had a class on looking for loopholes, and yet I discovered, because I taught from elementary all the way through high school, kids naturally look for loopholes. I could be in a class and look out, and I could see Bill over there, and Bill's poking his friend Sammy with his finger, just to, you know, because that's what you do when you're a kid. And so as a teacher, I'll look at and say, Bill, stop poking Sammy with your finger. Okay, okay. And he sits there and he looks around, and guess what? He's going to go. Starts poking him with the pen, not with his finger, right? What did he do? He found a loophole, right? We always look for loopholes. Maybe you've heard of tax loopholes. Maybe you've heard of other types of things. What's the purpose of a loophole? It's to make your way around a rule, to keep from keeping a law, to find a way to have your will done and not the will of the authorities. In our sermon series of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been, we're in a, seri- we're in a part of that sermon right now, where he's began each week, we hear, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's going to talk about something that was in the Hebrew Scriptures And then he is going to not contradict, but correct how it's been twisted, how it's been misinterpreted. So with that in mind, I invite you to join me to Matthew chapter 5, and let's pick up where we left off last week. One of the big themes in this is this idea of treating image bearers honestly, treating image bearers correctly. Lance talked a little bit about that. So the idea and the concept of image bearer is important. Today we're going to talk about, in the first section, about oaths. Let's define oaths first before we read it. We're going to to read the word swear. The idea is this idea of calling on some kind of divine source to bolster your words, to keep your words a little bit stronger, you know, make them mean something. Maybe you've heard people say, I swear to God, or I swear on a stack of Bibles, That's kind of the idea that we have in mind. So let's read and see what Jesus says. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Your translation may say from the evil one, you know, the father of lies. When we look at what Jesus has said, remember, not contradicting, but correcting a misteaching. When we read, you have heard it said, where had they heard it said? Let's take a moment in this look and see Where did they see this at? So in Leviticus 19, we read this. This is the third commandment. You shall not swear by the name falsely, by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Closely tied to the third commandment is what Jesus is talking about. When you swear, do not swear falsely. It's important if you're going to bring God's name into a conversation, that you do so honestly. But then... It goes further than that. In Numbers thirty-two or 30, verse 2, we read this. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In other words, what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures is that taking an oath is very, very serious. It's connected to the third commandment. And Jesus is saying, you've heard that. You know what the teaching is, but then he's going to kind of turn the tables on them, and he's going to say, but I say to you. Now, remember who Jesus is. He's one with the Father. He's the eternal Son of God, pre-incarnate. He was with God at creation. He was an agent of creation. He is in the whole narrative. These are, in a sense, Jesus' own words. So as he contradicted himself when he says, don't take these oaths, well, I don't think we can go there. How does this play out? God himself takes oaths, and when he talks to Abraham, he takes an oath, oath. The writer of Hebrews points it out this way, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater notice by whom to swear, he, referring to God, he swore to himself. God made an oath. So if God made an oath, what is Jesus saying here about not taking oaths? In fact, we can go post-church. We can go when the church is in function, and Paul says this. He tells a group of people in Thessalonians, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this, read, this letter read to all the brothers. So this is the apostle Paul, the teacher of teachers in the New Testament, and he is saying, I put you under oath. So what is Jesus saying here? What's, the, what's going on? Well, as we started off our conversation today, loopholes, people twisting language, that's what was taking place in Jesus' time, and He's addressing that. He's correcting that. I'm going to invite you to turn over into Matthew chapter 23, and let's look, take a, a peek here at what was going on. Chapter 23, and I want to draw your attention to verse um, verse 16, verse 16. Let's see what was going on. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, oh, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? In verse 18, and you say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, He's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift of the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? In verse 20, So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is being very clear. If you make an oath, and you call upon the temple, it's sacred. But they were twisting their words. They were playing games. The officials, they were leaving themselves some wiggle room. Imagine this, if you went to do a land deal with someone. And you, you have the, the man that you're going to sell your land to, and he comes up, and you agree on a price, but it's late in the day. We'll go to the official offices. I'll give you the deed tomorrow. And he said, wait a minute. How do I know we're agreed upon the price? And the man who's selling says, I swear by the temple I will sell it to you at this price. Okay, good enough. Well, on the way to the courtroom the next day, the man who's selling it gets a better offer, right? And when he gets there, the guy says, But wait a minute, you swore to sell it to me for this amount. No, I I didn't swear. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. I just swore by the temple. Wiggle room. Wiggle room. Playing games with words. And Jesus is addressing that. We're going to talk about how do we know when we do take an oath, but what I want you to see right now is they were twisting things around. It wasn't just ancient Israelites that do that either. Have you heard this phrase in our culture, the phrase post-truth? Post-truth. It was coined in the early 90s, but it became popular in the last decade. Post-truth was actually the word of the year. I didn't know dictionaries did this, but in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary named post-truth as their word of the year. Look at how they describe it. Post-truth is an adjective relating to denoting circumstances in which, and notice how they unpack this, objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Jesus said the reality is anything in the temple is sacred. You guys... When you do this, you're blind fools. You're twisting words around. And they're saying, but it doesn't feel that way. You know, really, it's the gold that's valuable. They were playing games with truth, and people in our day play games with truth. Maybe you've heard the word propaganda. Maybe you've heard political spin. These are things that take place in our world today. There's an there's a idiom among statisticians that says, if you, take, if you torture the data long enough, you can make it say anything. We play games with language. One author who's written about this said this, I think post-truth is a tactic. It's it's something that's used by authorities and those who want to be an authority to control the flow of information so that they can control the populace. Jesus is coming against lying. He's coming against deceit. When we look at what he's talking about, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the issue is always, always the heart. And he's encouraging people. He's saying, be honest with your words. Speak the truth. Look at verse 36. He's going to give them another reason. In verse 36, we read this, and do not take an oath by your head because you cannot make one hair black or white. You also can't make it grow. I can speak from experience. <laughs> he's not talking about dyeing your hair. He's talking about just willing your hair to grow or to do this or whatever. And he's saying, you can't do that. You can't do the least little thing. How can you guarantee when you call upon, how can you make God do anything? When you swear to God or when you say, may God strike me dead, you don't control God. It's a foolish thing to do. His half-brother James writes about this. He says this, come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go in such and such town and we'll spend a year there and trade and notice, make a profit. They're pretty pretty sure of themselves, right? James continues, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He says, you don't even know if you'll be alive tomorrow. Where I grew up, sometimes people would say, I'll be there, do that if the good Lord's willing and the creek don't rise. It's actually not a bad phrase because it's acknowledging some things. It's acknowledging that I need God's help to keep my word, and there are circumstances in this world that are beyond my control. Jesus is addressing that. He's saying, think about who you are, and think about who you represent when you use your words. He's saying, be honest. Be a person of your word. Dwight Pentecost said it this way. Let your character, your reputation for honesty, your word be so obviously true and undefiled that with, without duplicity, that no man would think it necessary to put you under oath. Jesus is bringing us to a high calling. He's saying, I want you to be people that speak the truth. That's who Christians are supposed to be. We should be the most honest people. We should have that reputation. I don't know if you're aware of this, we don't have that reputation. I had a friend who was a pastor in a small town, and he told me that in a lean month, he went to the local grocer, and he asked the grocer for a line of credit so he could feed his family that week. And the grocer was a little surly about it, and he's like, okay, you know, fine. So he he puts his groceries on credit. Well, when the pastor goes back to pay the bill, you know what? The grocer was shocked. He said, I can't tell you how many preachers have come through this town and left, With unpaid bills. Jesus is saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. I wanna draw your attention to one other thing before we leave this section. Look at the word more. He says anything more than this comes from the evil one or comes from evil. What we're seeing here is this piling on of words. I had a guy one time in my office. This was years and years ago, before I worked here, but he just kept trying to bolster his words by saying, "I swear to God, I swear on a stack of Bibles." And the more he swore, the less I believed in. The piling on of words it doesn't make you appear more honest. It does exactly the opposite. The writer of Proverbs says this: When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I summarize that sometimes by saying, if you talk long, you talk wrong. (laughs) It's real easy, the more you talk, to get yourself into trouble. And the writer of Proverbs picks up on that. So when we look at this, what we see is a very simple statement from Jesus. Be honest. When you make a vow, keep the vow. Now, some people, because we have this tendency too, will go to an extreme. There are well-meaning conscientious people who have existed, who have taken this verse to mean you should never take an oath. I would disagree with them. I showed you where God had taken an oath. I showed you where the Apostle Paul brought people under an oath. It's not a dishonest thing. It's not counter to Scripture to take an oath. If you get called into court and you're told to put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, you're not sinning if you do that. The issue here is to be honest. It's the heart issue. Tell the truth. Of course we're going to tell the truth. Of course it's good to say, so help me, God. That's not a problem. So you may be asking, well, Joe, when do I take an oath and when do I don't? Well, it requires discernment. It requires walking in the Spirit. There's a lot of things in Scripture like that. I can't take you to the appendix of the Bible, and there's a, a, a total list of every time you should take an oath and shouldn't take an oath in 2022. Romans 8, Paul tells us about walking in the Spirit, setting our mind on the things of God, studying the Scripture, and having a grid to filter life through. That concept of having a grid is going to be important in this next section that we move to. So we move from oaths now to something even heavier, even weightier. We're going to talk about retaliation. So I take your attention to verse 38. I don't know, if you know of a list like this, let me know. I wonder if anyone's ever compiled a list of the most tortured, twisted, and disrupted verses in the Bible. If there was a top 10 list somewhere of the verses taken out of context and misused, I am almost sure this verse would be on that list, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We hear it in our world, they heard it in their world. And people vastly across the globe, even people that don't necessarily read the Scripture, they know that term, and it's often misapplied. In fact, I would say the majority of time, it's misapplied. Remember, Jesus isn't contradicting the words of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's correcting how they've been applied. This verse was was applied by exacting personal vengeance happens in our day too. Maybe you have a song that you listen to, and it may talk about an eye for an eye. Maybe you've been to a vengeance movie, because there's a lot of vengeance movies out there, and almost all the time you'll hear somebody quote, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Is that really what was going on? Is that really what was being taught? You know, it was something that was said. In Exodus 21, we read this, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. (laughs) This list just keeps going on. Foot for foot, burn for burn. I think we got it at this point. It keeps going. Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What's being said there? Is this about personal vengeance? Is this about if somebody steps on my foot, I'm going to step on their foot? Is that the goal? Is that what this was all about? Jesus is saying, you've heard this. But I say to you, he's going to correct how it's being applied. When you go back into the Hebrew Scriptures and you read about their legal system, this wasn't a bunch of wild tribal people wandering around, and this was about vengeance and the feuds that were going on. This was part of their legal system. This is an idiomatic way of saying, let the punishment fit the crime." And this phrase, an eye for an eye, was never meant for individuals, okay? They had a very particular, very specific legal system. Look at what we read in Deuteronomy 16. You shall shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes. And notice, and they shall judge the people with righteousness, with righteous judgment. They had judges, they had policemen, so to speak, not like we have policemen, but they had people that would enforce the law. They had elders of the city. And when you would go to the elders of the city, this was actually meant to be a restraint. Let's say you were working on a job and you're, you get in an argument with the guy whose house you're working at and you're so mad at him, you just reach over and you, excuse me, you stomp on one of his chickens and kill him. That's mean, right? He killed his chicken. That's not a nice thing to do. And so the guy now, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? no. He doesn't have the privilege of going and killing that man's chicken. They have to go to the elders of the city and say, look, we got into an argument. He killed one of my, one of my creatures that we depend upon for our food. And the elders would look at it, and here's what the elders can't do. They can't say, oh, that's mean. You give him five chickens. No, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He's saying all you can do is take one chicken from this person and give it to that person. It was to keep justice from being, to run amok and become retribution. There are places in our world today, if you steal something, your your hand is cut off. This law, an eye for an eye, it was meant to restrict and to protect the people. It was never meant to be personal vengeance to be taken. We know this by the examples that Jesus gave us. Look with me. Look at verse 38. What kind of evil are they not to resist? Notice, none of it has to do with crime. Do you see that? Look at verse 39. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, everybody look up here. Predominantly, the world is right-handed. It was true then, it's true now. If a man's standing in front of me and I want to slap him on the right cheek, it's over here. If I'm going to use my right hand, the predominant hand in the culture, I would have to do this. It's a backhand. We have a term for this, a backhanded compliment, or he backhanded me with his words. In other words, this is a, a way of saying you get insulted. This isn't a punch. This isn't a violent attack. This is an insult. Maybe you've seen an old movie where they take a glove or a gauntlet and they slap the person's face and they have to have a duel or something you know, afterwards. That's what's being brought here. And Jesus is saying, if someone insults you, and by the way, remember he's talking to disciples of his that are going to be his disciples. Let it go. Let it go. Why not? Be bigger than that. Be above the fray. Don't be easily brought into a little argument. You know, one of the a counselor that I knew years ago gave us this example. She said, for an argument to take place. It's like a tug of war. Tug of war. And the only way that tug of war can keep going is if both people hold on to the rope. And Jesus is saying, let go of the rope. There's a time to let go of the rope. And in these personal offenses, instead of taking vengeance, instead of having this heart bent on, I'm going to get my rights and you're not going to talk to me that way, he's saying, let it go. There's a time to let it go. And then he moves to what I would call a petty lawsuit. Look, he's going to take him to court for his coat or his tunic. That's even in their day and age, that was a pretty petty lawsuit. They even had a rule in the Old Testament that you can't take a person's coat and keep it all day; you have to give it back to him before nightfall. This was a petty lawsuit. He's saying, "Don't, don't get involved in that." Apostle Paul talks about this in First Corinthians six. He says, "Why not suffer loss than the shame of going to court with another believer, another person, and..." Demanding your rights every single time. It goes on to talk about going the second mile. In their day and age, they had been conquered by the Romans. The Romans had a law when in their conquered territories. They could force a citizen to carry their pack a mile. It was a humiliation. It was an inconvenience. And Jesus is saying, don't give them the dignity of letting your heart be disturbed. Carry it two miles. Go a little further. Maybe even, he didn't say this, but I think it's implied, talk to the person. Demonstrate that the people of Israel are bigger than that, that insults don't land. And then he goes to a strange thing in verse 42. He talks about giving to the one who begs from you. I have to tell you, I puzzled a little bit over this. And I don't know that I've landed on exactly the right place, but what does this have to do with this personal offense type thing? You know what I think it has to do with? we're always scared someone's going to take advantage of us. If someone begs from us or someone tries to borrow from oh, if we're so rigid and we're so protected and so scared that someone's going to take advantage of us, we're going to be eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus is saying, take the chance. Let, let, let them have what they ask of you. Jesus is calling them to a higher standard. And we're gonna talk about the fact that there is a time where that suffering of loss is even higher right at the end. But at this point in the message, we're gonna have to take a little bit of a a little bit of a detour. I want us to talk about something that's very important. Not only did Jesus have to correct their application of it, we are gonna have to correct the application of Jesus' correction. Have you ever heard people quote an eye for an eye? Or I'm sorry, quote, turn the other cheek. As this idea that you have to let people run over you. It's been taught, and a lot of damage has been done to people over the years because of it. This idea can sometimes translate it as pacifism with a V, and there's pacifism with an F. We're gonna look at a, a, a slide here in just a second and talk about the difference of those. People say that in conscientious, well-meaning people will say that's what Jesus is teaching. It's important that we know whether or not that's really what Jesus is teaching. Now look at the difference in these words. Sorry. The difference in these words. Passivism versus pacifism. People often confuse pacifism with... You try this ten times. It's kind of hard. <laughs> ...with pacifism. While both concern nonviolence, the latter one is determined, notice, to simply let violence happen without opposition regardless of injury or consequences. That's extreme. That's very extreme. I had a friend, one of our co-workers here, as we were going over this passage, he said he knew a young couple that actually were committed to passivism, the more extreme of the two, this idea that no matter what happens in my home, if a criminal breaks into my home, my wife and I have agreed we won't resist them at all. Just let them do whatever they want to do. If they want to do personal violence to us on our bodies, we're just going to submit to that. They were committed to that. They believed that that was what Jesus was teaching. But is that what Jesus was teaching? One of the best things to do when we come to a question like this, a passage, is to go and look and see how Jesus modeled it, see how the people of Scripture modeled it. Did Jesus always just lay down and let things happen to him? Now, obviously, we're going to talk before we're done about his crucifixion, but is that in a different category? The reality is that Jesus didn't always give in to this, and I want us to see the principle first. So turn over to Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul helps us greatly with this passage. If you mark in your Bible, there's a few words here that I would encourage you to consider marking. Look at verse 17 with me. Repay no one evil for evil. Now just let that sit. Repay no one evil for evil. And then he continues. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. But notice the last part, and this I would encourage you to mark. Overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. You remember when we were talking about grids and how we filter things through, what, I, what we're about to look at in the verses that, about Jesus, I think he's overcoming evil with good. Let's look at a couple of places. In Luke chapter 4, one of my favorite places, Jesus has just gone to his hometown church and he's got up and he's read from Isaiah and he has said, this day, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. They know he's claiming to be the Messiah. They know that he is making a a claim that no man has the right to make claim unless it's true. And so this is what they do. They rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. Sounds violent, doesn't it? Sounds like Jesus is being captured and pushed out of town. And we continue reading, so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's a violent action. And notice what Jesus does. But passing through their midst, he went away. I don't know how he did it. I would have loved to be there. I would love to see this on film. They're about to throw him off, and Jesus just stops, and he turns, and he walks away. Did he use supernatural power? Did he flex his muscles and scare him? I, I don't know what he did, but here's what I do know. Their intention to do him harm, he resisted it. He didn't allow it, and it's not the only time. We read this in John 8. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. He protected himself. Do you see that? He went out of the temple and they couldn't find him. Jesus took actions to protect himself at that time. And you know why he did? It wasn't his time yet. For the cause for which he came, it wasn't time for him to lay down his life. He loved those people that were pushing him out to the cliff. He loved them so much he wasn't going to let them get away with that act of violence at that time. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't because he hated them. It wasn't because he was going to take vengeance upon them. It's because it wasn't the right time. We could go to the passage where he drives the people out of the temple, out of the, gar- out of the temple for selling things. His house, his father's house. He makes a whip. He turns over table and he drives them out. Jesus was not a pacifist. He simply wasn't. And when he comes back, by the way, he's coming with a sword. Not because he hates, he's coming back because he loves justice. Each and every time that we see Jesus resisting, each and every time we see him working not to allow people to bring violence upon his person, it's not because of vengeance, it's not because of anger, it's because he loves justice, he loves truth. When I read through this and I process the things that we've been talking about, if a person breaks into my home... I will use every ounce of force I have at my my ability to defend my family. Not because I hate the criminal, but because I love my family. When you love people, you defend them and you protect them. This is how G.K. Chesterton put it. I love this quote. The true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. Do you see the difference there? It's okay to take action. It's okay to defend yourself. This teaching, teaching that Jesus is just saying lay down and take everything that comes, is very, very dangerous, and that's why we're spending so much time on it. I'm sad to tell you, if you've never heard this, there have been pastors and teachers and counselors over the course of the last 2,000 years that have told, have told spouses to stay in abusive relationships because Jesus said, turn the other cheek. They've told people to do things, to stay in situations that were dangerous and harmful for them. And that's wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying. Listen to my words carefully. The most loving thing that you can do if you're in an abusive situation is expose the abuser. Bring them to justice. And I invite you to open your bulletin up. Or look on your app, because it's in both places. Under the discussion questions, we've made a statement. Please know that the Scripture does not direct believers to remain in an abusive situation. Loving and protecting God's image bearers includes yourself. And then we have a hotline number for you to call if you need to. If you're here today and you're in an abusive relationship, whether it's at home with a spouse, it's your parents, it's a family member, somebody at work, somebody at school. If you're being harmed by someone, please reach out to someone in authority. Reach out to a safe person. Call this hotline. You are not following the tenets of Scripture by just allowing yourself to be a victim. We would want you to be in a safe place. Jesus himself at certain times brought himself and put himself in safe conditions. And so these teachings, when when people twist this, it's very dangerous. So understand the difference. We have on one side abuse and criminal activity. It's appropriate to defend the image bearer against abuse and criminal activity. But then on the other hand, Jesus is telling them to give in to something, isn't he? He is telling them not to resist something, and that's in the category of insults. You know, somebody being mean to you on Facebook, is not a, that's, that's not abuse. Someone saying something mean to you and hurting your feelings, that, that's not the same. Somebody, and here's a problem in our culture today, somebody disagreeing with you, okay? <laughs> that's not the cardinal sin. People disagree. There's a difference, and there is a time and there is a place to resist evil. Criminals and abuse... The loving thing to do is to expose them. But with personal insults, and ultimately, when you come to the issue of persecution for the cause of Christ, then there is a different situation. And as we look at Scripture, we see Jesus modeling for us what we are to do, and Peter holds him up as the model. I want to read this passage of Scripture to you. This is 1 Peter. He's talking about this idea of suffering for the Lord. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice the last couple of sentences. He bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, we have been healed. There is a time and there is a place in persecution where it might be the opportunity for you to lay down your rights to safety. I love the story of the martyrs over the last 2,000 years. One of my favorites is by a man by the name of Polycarp. He was one of the early disciples of the Apostle John. I got it wrong this morning. I thought he was the disciple of a disciple. He actually knew the Apostle John, and he learned from him. He was one of the early leaders in the second century. And as he got to an advanced age, there started to be persecution among the Romans. And one of the things that they would do is they would make you swear to Caesar, take an oath. You know what Polycarp said? He said, because that meant basically you're saying Caesar is God. Polycarp said, I can't do that. When they brought him to the front, people pleaded with him, Polycarp, just burn the incense to Caesar and say the words and and save your life. And he said, no. He said, 80 and 6 years I've served Christ, and he has never let me down or failed me. How can I deny my Savior? That's a situation of persecution. There is a time, and it requires discernment to know when it is. But if you're in a situation of abuse or there's a criminal attack, that's not the time to be passive. That's the time to take action. Love would encourage you to be active in that situation. So I hope as we go through these passages, because they've been twisted, that's why Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. It's to clear up the teaching. As we look at this and we see what Jesus did for us and we see what he said, Our hearts should be drawn to him. This is a God who came to earth, and he encouraged people to tell the truth. Let your words be meaningful. When you say yes, let it mean yes. When you say no, let it be no. If you're here today, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do so. He's a worthy Savior. He's a worthy King. And he did suffer and die for you. And you can come to him, and you can have New life in him through simple childlike faith. Jesus didn't look for a loophole. Jesus leaned into what he was calling was. And he's calling us to honesty and he's calling us to at times of personal sacrifice. But let's make sure that we hold the word in proper balance. Let's tell the truth and let's serve other people and filter our reactions to this world through love. Jesus overcame evil with love.
0: You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.